Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Mary Patterson. Mary is the founder of the Lotus Yoga Center in Canada, and she writes and teaches and speaks internationally about the transformational powers of yoga and meditation. Mary was also trained in classical ballet and has performed professionally in theater and film. She has worked with such luminaries as Michael Ondaatje, the author of The English Patient, for which he won the Booker Prize. Mary is the author of a new book called The Monks and Me. It's a memoir about her 40-day pilgrimage to Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh's Buddhist monastery in France. It's a delightful read, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome Mary to New Consciousness Review. Welcome, Mary. Hello, Miriam. I, I once went on a retreat at a Buddhist monastery here in the Pacific Northwest. So I know it is not for faint hearts or creepy knees. <laughs> You're me, right. <laughs> what was happening in your life that compelled you to go on this spiritual voyage? Uh, well, I had turned 40 and my father had died. Uh, those are the two you know, main reasons um, that I had felt unsettled and was searching for a deeper experience that would help me heal. Um, I've been practicing yoga and meditation for many years, so I had all these tools at my command. And I had ventured out over the years, you know, to various uh, retreat centers um, on various meditation courses, but only for a maximum of 10 days in length. And so I had you know, thought about this sacred number 40 and um, researched it a little bit, you know, remembered that uh, it's a number that is um, transformational. So Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, you know, and discovered his purpose. Um, Many spiritual teachers have gone on some kind of journey for 40 days in order to come to some realization. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I thought, well, this would be the time for me, especially since I had turned 40. And so there was the synchronicity factor there. Uh, this would be the time for me to dive deeper into a practice um, just to see if it would help with, um, you know, this deeper healing I was searching for after the loss of my second parent. And also just as a way to um, try to discover, you know, more resources for all the challenges that come up in life. Like I just was looking to become uh, stronger in general. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the loss of one's last parent is, is a major, major watershed in your life. So why did you select uh, the Plum Village Monastery? Well, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, funnily enough, I, I had read his books. I'd read several books, but I hadn't ever practiced uh, Zen Buddhist meditation. I'd practiced Vipassana Buddhist meditation and various yoga meditations. Um, But (laughs) I just one day was Googling 
meditation and, and, you know, various spiritual teachings. And um, the Plum Village website came up and also a uh, specific article about Thich Nhat Hanh had shown up. And I read it and it was really an instantaneous epiphany that I was going to go there. And I, I really can't explain it any other way. I, you know, had read his books, like I said, but I'd read, you know, lots of books by lots of uh, various meditation teachers. Um, so it was kind of impulsive. Um, I love France. So that was a, a sort of a, you know, an extra incentive to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was it. It was just that sort of discovery online. You you describe uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was, what, 80, 84 years old or something? Yes, uh, he, he was 84 years old at the time when I was there, yes. What was it like being in his presence? Um, it's, I was, you know, not expecting um, the feelings that came up. Um, I had been in the presence of various what I would say, you know, what I would call enlightened masters um, here and there, just a handful <laughs> with my various studies um, and in India and such. But um, there was something very, very transcendent, a transcendent quality about Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, he's the softest, gentlest presence I've ever um, had the fortune of, of being around. And um, I knew that he knew uh, and had seen a lot more than me. <laughs> you know, when you, you have the sense that someone has realized uh, a lot about this world, and it just sort of emanated off of him. And I really feel it was an energetic um, experience of just absorbing his vibrations <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, without him even speaking. Uh, but then when he spoke, you know, everything that comes out of his mouth is um, insightful. So uh, I had I had a very very powerful feeling of um, um, good fortune that I had somehow found myself there. Well, they do say when the student is ready, the master will show up. Yes. Um, what was it like uh, actually living in a monastery with, with nuns and monks as well as all the, the pilgrims? Well, that <laughs> was, again, unlike what I had thought, you know, it would be. But in fact, I probably now didn't really have any expectations going in. I kind of just, you know, walked into the place. But it was, you know, full of challenges. You're basically living with a bunch of people that you don't know. And they're from all over the world. And there's lots of cultural differences. Um, people are coming there with their own wounds, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I had the sense that, 
you know, people don't venture to a monastery if their life is going really well in the, in their regular world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I, perhaps some do, you know, some really, you know, um, strong seekers. Uh, but, you know, I had this sense that um, people were looking for healing. And so, there's, there, you know, there was a lot of sensitivities. Um, some people, just like anywhere in the world, some people you really connect with and enjoy speaking to and would choose, a, you know, as a friend and others, um, you know, you really don't like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was, there was all of that. And, and that was, um, all part of the, the growing process and healing process, you know, to, um, to face these uncomfortable feelings. And then at times, you know, there was such joy and comfort and, um, beautiful, wonderful experiences, uh, meeting all these various people. And the nuns are, you know, in, in general, all of them are just such beautiful people as well as the monks. You um, describe them very movingly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I felt that, you know, I felt that they really cared for me and they really cared for, for everybody. And that's, you know, you don't come across that that often, where someone who you've just met uh, is willing to do all these things for you and and really go out of their way um, to help you feel, um, you know, alive and happy. And so it was, yeah, it was just a really interesting experience, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Well, the the disciplines of monastic life are not for the faint of heart. Um, What was the typical daily schedule at the monastery? Oh, and I have to ask you, did did the monks really not get mattresses? Uh, Well, some have thin mattresses. Uh, Others have just wooden slats. I think they have a little bit of a choice. Um, but the really serious ones just, uh, choose to sleep on, um, the wooden slats. Kind of the Buddhist, <laughs> the Buddhist version of the hair shirt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Raised off the floor, of course. But, um, in fact, you know, I think I was only in one, one of the monastic rooms once, uh, of the the nuns and um, peeked in another one another time. Like, you know, you don't want to really, it's not like you're hanging out in the nuns <laughs> sleeping quarters. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I remember the first time I saw the wooden slats and then I asked one of the nuns and they said, oh yeah. And, and there is um, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, you know, this tenet of um, not sleeping on high luxurious beds I'm not sure exactly if that's the quote, <laughs> how it's worded, but it's part of the um, monastic life is to not be too comfortable when you're sleeping. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, what was the typical daily schedule at the monastery? Uh, well, we would rise. Um, well, the first bell would go off at 5 a.m., 
And then we had a half an hour to get ourselves um, to the meditation hall. So, you know, uh, no breakfast or anything before that, but just washing up briefly. And then we would meditate um, with various practices, um, chants and also um, silent meditation and uh, something that's called bowing to the earth which um, are bows towards the Buddha uh, image in the, um, in the meditation hall, and a reading from various sutras or the teachings of the Buddha. And all that would be around about an hour and a half. It would vary a, a bit depending on what they were um, teaching, what they were practicing um, that morning and then um, there would be a short break and then there would be um, breakfast and all of this is done in silence so there is no speaking from um, after dinner to um, after breakfast so then once breakfast was finished uh, we would have a various working meditation Practices. So we were assigned um, some chore to do around the monastery. And so each person had their chore and it changed at different times. You know, one time I had, you know, my chore was weeding the garden and raking the leaves and to various things like that. I never had to scrub the toilets, so I got lucky there. <laughs> um, and then there would be walking meditation at 11 o'clock, and that is for an hour. And then um, lunch. And again, all the meals are in silence, so that uh, was the practice. Then again, in the afternoon, there may be... Um, uh, a video talk we would watch um, by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, and then we would do the working meditation again. And then there would be dinner. And then meditation in the evening again for about an hour and a half. And then it was time for bed. That was a typical day. But on days of mindfulness, when Thich Nhat Hanh would be speaking and giving a Dharma talk, uh, it was quite different. We would all gather from the various hamlets. There were four hamlets. We would all gather in one of the hamlets uh, in the early morning. And then um, Thich Nhat Hanh would speak for about an hour and a half or two hours on a um, specific topic. And then after he spoke, we would gather in small groups and discuss the Dharma talk for about an hour and a half. And that was done in a specific way um, where it wasn't just this kind of free-for-all. We would speak one at a time and then um, it wasn't allowed to uh, respond to what someone was sharing. Uh, so it was this very interesting kind of um, process where we just shared our thoughts about the Dharma discuss the Dharma talk of Thais. And um, by the way, Thai is his uh, kind of affectionate name. Um, so that is uh, 
something that people just say regularly. He enjoys when people use his affectionate name. So I might uh-huh. say Ty uh, now and then. Um, and then there would be a formal lunch and um, various uh, walking meditations in the afternoon. And then we would all go back to our various hamlets and have the evening meditation and, and bed again. So, uh, you know, it depended on whether or not Thich Nhat Hanh was present and speaking. Um, when I was there, he, he did that twice a week. And the other days were uh, just what I had previously described to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which of the disciplines did you find most difficult to follow? Uh, well, sometimes the mindfulness days were harder, even though they were more enjoyable because it was so wonderful to hear Thich Nhat Hanh speak. But we have to get up sometimes like at 4 a.m. in the freezing cold and be we would be bussed to the hamlet where he would be speaking. And it wasn't close. They're not close together. They're about 45 minutes apart. Some of Really? Them. Oh, yeah. They're spread out. I'm not sure why that is, but they're spread out. And, um, you know, a couple are for nuns and a couple are for monks. And then the, the various uh, female pilgrims stay at the nuns' monasteries. And um, the male visitors stay with the monks. Um, so the, so sometimes that was tricky. And also because you were, you were kind of outside all day or most of the day. And then only inside when we were hearing the... Dharma talk, um, and the the meditation halls were often really cold. <laughs> I was there, you know, in the in the um, middle of winter, and it's in the Aquitaine region of France, which is really damp. And the buildings of the monastery are old, and they're not heated properly. Mm-hmm. So I was probably cold for forty days. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, those stones really hold the cold, don't they? Yeah. And you know what? It, it's, um, it's, it's actually good that it's challenging like that. You know, it, it does help you grow and expand and recognize, you know, your strengths and um, also recognize that, you know, we have such an easy, luxurious life in our regular kind of Western lives. And so I wouldn't have had it any other way. Like I wouldn't have wanted it to be, you know, perfect temperature and comfortable and all of that. Well, you know, for you, you, you knew that you were going to be there for 40 days. Um, what do you think motivates the, the nuns and the monks um, yeah. to, to really live like that all the time? You know what? I, I actually... I think I think about that a lot. And I'm not sure I couldn't do it. It's so challenging. Like they're they're welcoming strangers all the time into their home, you know, this rotation of pilgrims coming mm-hmm. and going. And they're serving everybody. You know, they're cooking for all these people that they don't know. And um and doing this heavy-duty work around the monastery. Like, it takes a lot of work to upkeep a monastery. And then they've got their serious meditation practice. And 
I mean, they're very joyful and they have strong bonds between each other. So I know that there's this real feeling of community that they enjoy. And also, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh is, is such a beautiful presence to be around. So um, I'm sure that's a big reason. But, you know, it is really, really extreme to... Mm leave uh, a comfortable Western life and live as a monastic in the French countryside. Um, it's kind of a relief in some ways to not own anything. You know, monastics don't have any possessions. And I think that would be... Except for their bowl. Except for their bowl, that's right. <laughs> and that would be easier. It's easier to have less things to be responsible for um and and also you know various things that come up with family and work regular work life mm-hmm. um so in some ways i do think it's easier than a lay person's life and it's fulfilling because they're you know studying these amazing teachings of the buddha you know, all the time, but the actual practical day-to-day living, I mean, even putting aside celibacy, (laughs) (laughs) if you, if you've chosen that, even that, you know, as, as a young person, um, is interesting and I'm sure full of challenges, but, um, yeah, I, I don't quite know. I, I think some people are there, you know, because they've had, maybe a lot of trauma in their, in their past. And it is a way of healing, deep, deep healing. And some are just, at some it's cultural, you know, there's a lot of Vietnamese nuns and monks and in Vietnam, you know, there's all these happy people and they're just deciding to be monks or nuns. And there's, that's it. It's just a part of their culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but for Western people, um, there is more to it, but you know, like I didn't want to ask personal questions of, of the nuns and monks. I mean, some offered, uh, to share some history. Um, but I would never think of asking, you know, someone like, did you have a terrible past? And that's why, you're, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, I, I guess there's lots of reasons and I don't know them. <laughs> Was there a common thread to the reasons for your fellow pilgrims being there? Um, no, those were all varying reasons as well. But they were all, I would say, um, you know, people in search of healing and looking for greater meaning um, perhaps having a sense of being exasperated with uh, their day-to-day life and how it was going at their home um, and needing a big shift. Um, I had that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, I really had that sense. You know, there was one occasion where here we were just eating dinner one day in silence, and all of a sudden this pilgrim, this woman just started bawling her eyes out mm-hmm. and no one had said or done anything. And she just sat there crying and crying. And, um, you know, there was a beautiful nun put her arm around her and didn't say anything and just sat there with her arm around her. 
And so, you know, there's this, the atmosphere was such that it was really conducive to healing and allowing these things to come up and move through. Um, so, but, you know, one never knows why someone would burst out into tears. Um, just well, I, I suppose sometimes coming face to face, you know, in, in the silence, you don't have any distractions. So you really have to come face to face with your own demons, your own motivations. And uh, I can imagine that it could be very overwhelming. Miriam, that's it. Exactly. That's what happens in the silence. There's nowhere to hide from yourself. And so you've got to face the emotions. And, um, yeah, and so that is a very, very intense experience for sure. Tell us about your your own experience of practicing uh, Buddhist meditation. Um, what, what do you think you actually, um, were you changed by it? What did you get from it? You know, I have to say the meditation practice itself at, at Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery is not incredibly intensive. I've been to other centers for shorter periods of time, like 10 days and less, but the daily practice was more sitting meditation. So, you know, three hours a day sitting meditation is not really that much, actually. So the, the meditation practice itself itself isn't extremely intensive, but because then there's the walking meditation, the working meditation, you know, which are activities, but you're supposed to be doing them in this meditative mind. Um, everything sort of, you know, kind of blends into one and you start to feel uh, just a sense of being meditative throughout your whole day. But the actual sitting practice where you have to sit uh, and face your emotions minute to minute, you know, moment to moment. Um, it, it wasn't incredibly intensive. So I've, I've actually had deeper experiences just in sitting meditation um, at some other uh, places. But overall, you know, it's nothing can really take the place of hearing a Dharma talk live with Thich Nhat Hanh. Like you know that you feel like you're, you know, you're progressing leaps and bounds mm -hmm. hearing mm -hmm. him speak. And so, so that in and of itself is far more, um, well, important to me than, than, you know, meditating eight hours a day. Sitting meditation eight hours a day. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious as to what insights you might have had during your time there on a um, personal level. Yeah. Uh, well, I had one really, you know, personal kind of awakening about relationships. And um, I realized there that um, I had 
had this strange pattern uh, since my father had died. I didn't go immediately to the monastery after my father died. It was um, a, cu a couple of years afterwards. So he died in my 40th year, and I planned the pilgrimage in my 40th year, but I actually didn't venture out till later. So in the interim, after my father had died and before I went to the monastery, I had been choosing all sorts of um, inappropriate men uh, for romantic relationships. And I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but they were all unavailable. And, you know, I connected that I thought that I was doing that because my father had died and I didn't have this um, male love in my, in my life. And, and for the first time I realized uh, that at the monastery, that, that I was actually choosing men that weren't available to love me. And it felt very connected to my father's death. Mm -hmm. So I would say that was a big insight. It helped me switch and realize that um, that pattern was there. And although when I returned, you know, it's it's one thing having an epiphany and recognizing a pattern. It, it's a it's a it's different thing to actually um, embody it and actually live your life in a way that you really know that. So, you know, I, I dated other men after I got back, but we're still not available. But uh, it's been much, much better. <laughs> and, and the realization of that was freeing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. And as you moved forward through your life after uh, this experience, um, did you find that yourself, you, you had changed and what kind of change was it? Yes, I did feel I had changed. I, you know, I had two very loving parents and they were, you know, there for me at the drop of the hat and, um, and their love was ever present. I could just feel, you know, pick up the phone at any time if I had a problem and uh, I knew I would have support from them. And so when that's gone, there's this sense of, you know, your siblings are good, but they don't have that same kind of um, unconditional love for you that a parent has. And if you're moving in and out of romantic relationships, you know, that's sort of shaky ground as well. You don't have someone to rely on. Um, so, I'm sure it was all part of the, you know, the master plan for me was to make sure I understood that the only person that would ever be there for me was me. Uh -huh. And that's, you know, what Thich Nhat Hanh describes as um, taking refuge in the self, recognizing that, uh, you know, you have all the tools and the wisdom to meet anything that happens in your life with uh, real awareness. And uh, so I feel like I did 
build a stronger, more stable foundation uh, so that when, you know, something happened in my life after I returned from the pilgrimage, um, I... I didn't tell, I I just, I, I handled things and I still now handle things better, much better than I did before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Much, much better. Just because I, I rely on myself first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you reminded me of a passage that I had marked because I I was really very taken by it. I'm going to read it. When we have compassion toward ourselves, we are able to expand those benevolent feelings out towards others. Mm. This boat carries understanding, which brings love. Without understanding, it is not possible to love. Mm. Your love is not true love. When we completely understand others, we carry ourselves to the shore of freedom, love, and happiness. Mm. Um, that, that really uh, impressed me because... It sounded like his teachings were saying that we start with our own self-reference. We start with getting our own um, relationship to ourself in order. And then we have the foundation to go um, and, and be gracious and kind and loving towards others. How, how did you interpret that? Oh, that's exactly how I interpreted it, Miriam. Um, And Ty would say these things, you know, regularly. He would say, you really got to um, have this deep love and caring and compassion for every aspect of yourself first. Uh, You know, the bad, the good, the ugly, the negative, the joyous, everything that's within you Mm -hmm. must be able to have this compassionate relationship with every aspect of yourself Mm-hmm. And only then can you feel compassion for another because it's actually impossible to just pull that quality out of the air if it's not, you know, watered and nurtured and nourished within you. And so it really is essential. And um, I, fe- I, I feel that even more deeply after you know, having the good fortune of of being in his presence for 40 days. I thought that was so profound. Um, I loved it. So um, the book, you know, unlike uh, the impression that our listeners might get from our conversation, the book was actually quite um, charming and lighthearted. And you came across many very colorful characters. Mm. Uh, tell us, tell us about some of them. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think, um, humor is so important in our lives and, um, especially when, when things are very challenging. I mean, if you can't see the funny side of things, um, you know, I think you're depressed. I I think a depressed person really uh, is humorless. You know, so that's almost like, well, you've already hit the bottom. Um, so, you know, uh, humor is essential. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to connect with people. And I think it's a way to connect with readers 
as well. And it's also, it's a nice contrasting tool to use for some of the very serious things that happen in our lives, like the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or any number of, of things that could happen. Um, you know, there are so many characters that I absolutely loved. I loved all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'd have to say, uh, one that comes to mind was she's carried through the whole book and, uh, it's an American pilgrim that I meet uh, on the, my very first day. And she's just somebody who kind of grates on my nerves, but there wasn't any particular incident until um, she, I was attempting to translate some of her um, English into French for a French-speaking nun. And my French isn't perfect, but it's, it's good. And everything was going along fine. But for some reason, she just kind of um, thought I said something that she didn't say or was concerned, I think, because maybe the the nun had this reaction and then she was wondering what I had said. Uh, and so she she blew up at me and in a really, really nasty way, um, kind of calling me names in, in the monastery. And uh, she was a troubled woman. Um, so I, I already sensed that, but, uh, we couldn't, it was, it took such a long time to, uh, get over that. Like we, we couldn't see eye to eye. We tried to, I thought I did my part to try and repair the incident. And, um, and so, you know, I just thought, my gosh, she's this crazy woman, who's like how come she ended up here and you know I felt like I couldn't escape from her you know I had to like eat with her and meditate with her and see her around all the time uh but she was very you know interesting I mean I mean it's interesting to come across a dynamic kind of extreme personality someone who could actually start uh yelling (laughs) in a in a in a meditation hall you know Mm -hmm. uh is is not your average person so it 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 it, you know it compels you to be flexible and adapt and understand that um there's all sorts of people in the world so there was her but there were uh so many you know there was another uh really funny thing that happened to me where um there was a fellow Brazil, a Brazilian woman who um, had decided to uh, fake an illness in order to get out of going to a lay friends gathering. And I. You aided and abetted her. Yeah, I aided and abetted her. And I fibbed my way really through it. Like I said, I didn't want to go either. And I said I had writing to do. And they, they gave me permission to stay. But it was really because I didn't want to go. And But she just faked uh, illness. And then we were on our way um, to into the small town for lunch, which we weren't supposed to do either. <laughs> and um, And then, you know, suddenly all these monks start walking down the road and, and we thought they were 
you know, at their hermitage and we didn't expect them to be there. And it was okay if they saw me because I had permission, but um, my fellow pilgrim didn't have permission or she was supposed to be sick in bed. And so this kind of comedy routine happened where she's, you know, hiding and I'm trying to signal her when the monks are gone and then more monks keep showing up and, and, you know, and you just feel like a child. You feel like here you are, you know, a 40 something adult and, and you feel like you're trying to get away with this thing. Uh, and it just feels childish and silly and dumb. At the time, I felt really embarrassed, you know, and now looking back and when I was writing the chapter as well, I could see how hilarious it was. Um, but, you know, she was she was really distressed. At the time. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, wouldn't you say that kind of getting back in touch with that childlike side of your nature was also part of the experience? Yes, it is, you know. You go back to the simple ways of of thinking and being, and and you discover, I think part of it is you discover all these emotions. Like, you know, that is a sort of a typical feeling you would have as a child, Um, being embarrassed or humiliated about something, being caught, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting to have those feelings come up in that way as an adult, triggered by this simple situation um, because of course we feel you know humiliated as adults as well uh, but we don't cope with it very well generally and so you know I think the various emotions that I went through I had to I really think I went through all of them and I had to look at everything and rediscover a relationship with each emotion. Um, I have a British upbringing, um, and so I'm a first-generation Canadian, but I was brought up in a way that, you know, you don't really share your feelings or talk Stiff about upper them. lip. Yes. And so, you know, I had, I think, repressed different emotions uh, at times and, um, held things in and just, you know, got through things in, uh, not very productive ways. And, you know, you have to really come to terms and you can't avoid emotions. Um, when you're in a place like a monastery, you have to look at them and and have a, you know, a deeper understanding of them. So it was very useful, actually, for for me afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you have any uh, real epiphanies or or transcendent experiences during your pilgrimage? Well, I did the first time I saw Thich Nhat Han. I felt my spine buzzing, like a real sort of energy in my in my body. And I had this sort of moment of thinking, everything's fine, no matter what happens, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and yeah, I, so that was a really strong feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had several, you know, smaller epiphanies about my life, my purpose, um, the meaning of life, um, 
how I relate to others. That was the big theme for me as well. Um, since I returned, I have a deeper relationship with my family members, with my brothers and uh, sister-in-law and nephews and niece. And um, is this what you call interbeing? Yes, actually. That is, um, you know, a teaching in the Buddhist tradition that uh, really is a, actually just a scientific <laughs> truth. And that is that everything's connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all made up of the elements of the world, the same elements. So literally, we're all, you know, coming from the same source and made up of the same things. And when we recognize that, you know, our actions affect others because we're all linked, then it changes your actions. And that's also karma, cause and effect. Um, And you recognize that everything is also dependent on everything else. Mm -hmm. So not only are they linked, but they're dependent. So, you know, um, my... I think that's that's actually a very profound lesson for us in, in the modern world. Oh, yes. That we are so interdependent. Yes, and I mean, we just have to look at climate change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything, you know, what happens in Africa is affecting what happens, you know, and the climate is affecting what happens in um, the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're, if they're burning down rainforests in Brazil, that's affecting the climate of the whole world, of the whole planet. So it, everything is dependent on everything else. And I think this Western, you know, privileged uh, way of thinking um, is very uh, wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, it's dismissing interconnection and interdependence. And I think it's, you know, every, people are waking up, but there's still, you know, people are just, many people are, are um, you know, so hooked on, on uh, energy sources that are going to be depleted. The gas. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you say that this pilgrimage changed you? Uh, you know, the foremost thing, I think, is that I am more self-reliant. Um, I feel more um, equanimous and balanced with the various things that happen in my life. And I feel more um, lighthearted and joyous, I would say. And I feel like my life is is um, more rich. I, I always have been a bit of a risk taker and a bit of an adventurer um, and an explorer, but I feel that that's actually heightened. So I venture out even more. You know, my for my next book, I'm I'm going to um, Tibet on a medical um, mission for the nomads. Um, and that's something I, you know, for 30 days, and that's something I probably wouldn't have done uh, if I hadn't done the 40-day. Um, really? Well, you are yeah. quite the adventurer. <laughs> I'm impressed. Oh, well, I feel fortunate, actually, uh-huh. uh, that I was lucky to sort of come across it. It's, um, 
It's with Roshi Joan Halifax. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And, and several physicians from Johns Hopkins and um, some monks and nuns and, um, and a writer, me, <laughs> and, <laughs> and a few volunteers. And uh, we're going to be setting up medical clinics along the Nepal-Tibet border um, and, uh, you know, providing services for people who have no access to basic care. Wow. You know, Roshi, Roshi Joan was telling me last year they dewormed 4,000 children. Mm. Mm. And so that simple, you know, one simple medication actually uh, helped save and, you know, make these wow. children's lives much better. And so, yeah, I, so I'm, as I said, I was always kind of this adventure, adventurer. <laughs> but, um, well, your uh, book is, your whole book is an adventure. So I, I commend it to our readers. Oh, uh, what is, what is your website? The website is www.lotusyogacenter.com and center is spelled with, in the Canadian way, with an R-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all the information is there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's been an adventure speaking with you, Mary. And uh, I would like to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mary Patterson, the author of The Monks and Me, How 40 Days at Thich Nhat Hanh's French Monastery Guided Me Home. It's been a delight, Mary. Thank you so much for being with us. Miriam, it's been my pleasure, and thank you so very much. If you enjoyed this interview, you'll find many more on our website, ncreview.com, along with summaries and reviews for thousands of new consciousness books and films. You'll also find a link there to our mobile app, as well as videos, events, author profiles, and blogs. That's at ncreview.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook.com slash ncreview. Well, next week, our guest will be Jim Jensen talking about his new book, Beyond the Power of Your Subconscious Mind. It's got lots of truly powerful insights you won't want to miss. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Thou Shall Enjoy by Scott Johnson from Boulder, Colorado.
Thou shall enjoy, says Scott Johnson, and I say amen. Scott has been writing positive pop songs for over 30 years. He performed with the international group Up With People. And Scott has been leading the way in the emerging movement of positive music by founding and running the Positive Music Association. It's a great organization of musicians with styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz. And all these wonderful people use music not just to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. Scott is also a life coach, a graphic designer, and author. And you can visit his website, positivemusicassociation.com. Well, I think that's our show for today, so I hope you'll join us next week. And until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>